Hi there to the Journey Church family. How are you doing today? Nice to see all of you, especially if you're a guest. We're particularly delighted that you've chosen to worship God with us today, and we hope today's meaningful and impacting and so forth, lasting. Uh, today we take up uh, this four-week foray into this book called The Shack in a series that we call Journey at The Shack, which by the way, uh, just so there's no misunderstanding whatsoever, uh, The Shack is not the biography of Shaquille O'Neal. I just want that to be on record in case you've been wondering about that. And if you've only read to page 66 of the book, which I heard throughout the week was difficult for people like to get to page 66 and then like put it down, but if you've only read that far and stopped there, I just want you to know that the book shifts gears pretty dramatically from page 66 on, okay? 1 through 66 is the most wrenching part of the book. It sort of up and to the right from that point forward, just in case you stopped at page 66. It gets better, not so bleak, right? And today in our time that we have together, I want to accomplish just three things. Uh, I want to introduce you to how the book The Shack came to be. Uh, I like backstories. I don't know that everybody does, but I'm going to tell the backstory to The Shack and some sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that I've run across. Then I want to talk to you about what exactly The Shack is and what exactly it represents. And then I want to challenge all of us, me included, uh, in this area of the trivialization of God, which we all have quite a steep propensity toward the trivialization of God. So let's just jump right in by way of introduction. I want you to know that William P. Young is not an author, right? He's the guy who wrote The Shack, but he is not the author. While certainly his name is on the front cover of a New York Times best-selling book, he's not an author. One day, Paul Young's wife, a gal named Kim, very sweet, she is, she urged him to write down some things and to put uh, sort of his understanding of who God is into one place. He's kind of an outside-the-box thinker about God, and she wanted that to be a Christmas gift for their six children. And uh, not even all that long ago from where we're standing now, Young's wife told him, uh, much after the fact the shack had been published and been out for a long, long time, she said, no, honey... Uh, I think you misunderstood me because I was thinking like a little paper, like maybe two to four pages or something like that. And here we have 248 pages as it came to be. And Young's entire goal when he was writing this gift to his children was to get the thing to Kinko's by Christmas so that it could be a Christmas gift for their children. But he didn't make it. He did not make it. The manuscript was done, absolutely, but the Young family was so broke, Paul Young was working three jobs at the time, he was so broke that they had to actually wait until they had got some Christmas money in from family and friends and such who had blessed them before he could take it in and have it run off and spiral bound at Kinko's, which happened some days after Christmas. The first publishing run of the shack then was 15, one five copies at Kinko's for the children and their families and so on. And because it was just written as a book for their kids, Young's going like, well, I can do anything that I want with the way that I write this little fictional story for my children, right? They're going to be the only people who ever read this thing. Nobody else is going to care. And so he's going, I don't have to follow any of the ordinary rules and such about writing. He didn't even know what they were, for that matter. Maybe he didn't even care. And so he just never gave any thought to it. Young wanted his kids to enjoy a story and through a story come to understand their father and through a story come to understand their heavenly father who their dad was so in love with. 
And so because he doesn't know, because he doesn't care what the normal rules of writing are, he comes up with this, quote, brilliant idea to have a guy named Willie, who is actually him, right? William P. Young, Willie, ghostwrite the story for this guy named Mac, right? That's how all that came to be. On the very first title page of the very first print run, it said, The Shack, written by Mackenzie Allen Phillips with William P. Young. He thought it would be clever. He thought his children would get a little ha-ha chuckle out of that. Nice going, Dad. Woo. But see, Mac is not a real person. Now, Young knew that his kids would rep- recognize Mac as mostly him. Nan, the mother in the story, a lot like Kim, who is Young's wife and uh, the children's mother. And Missy and Kate, the other characters, often resemble the Young family and extended friends of the family. So it, it wasn't any big deal to any of them to have a book written by a person who doesn't really exist until the first version that was run off at Kinko's started to get run off more and more at Kinko's and passed around and passed around. Friends were giving it to friends and the kids were passing it out, running off more and more copies. And pretty soon, Young found out that people in Canada and people in California are buying plane tickets to come to Portland, Oregon to meet with and talk to Mac, right? They're coming to see him, which is quite problematic because Mac is a fictional character who does not exist. So they're like, okay, uh, when we get the rest of this thing out there, we, we got to stop that because it's just too confusing. And so they removed Mac as the author, kept the ghostwriter idea as a story element, as it were. And his kids are going, Dad, you got to get this out. More people care about this. And he's like, really? Are you sure about that? And they're like, yes. And so he was nudged by his children and by the Lord. And so he sent a manuscript to the only real author that he knew, a guy named Wayne Jacobson. Some of you might have heard of him. And Wayne Jacobson is a guy who actually tries to write books. And it's the only author who Young knew, so he sends it to him. Very apologetically, though. It's kind of like, I'm really sorry, Wayne, to bother you with this, but my kids are telling me there might be something to this. And is there? Young just felt nudged by the Lord and by his children to do that. And Jacobson read it, and he was deeply moved by the thing. So deeply moved, he made copies of it, and he sent it out to some of his friends, a couple of whom happened to be movie producers. And they read it, they were deeply impacted by it, but they saw it mostly through the lens of a potential screenplay. It just had struck a chord with them. They wanted to make a movie out of it. They wanted to know what's going on with this thing. And so they're talking to Young, and they're talking to Wayne Jacobson, and And Young's going like, I don't know what to do with this. And Jacobson's going, I don't want anything to do with this. And so it just kind of lay in the weeds for a while. Finally, though, back in the spring of 2006, Young and Jacobson and these couple of movie producer friends of Jacobson's got together in California to talk about the screenplay potential of The Shack. That conversation led to the process of those four bearing down. And they bore down hard on editing this book. It had never been edited before. And through that process, they focused it. You might have noticed, uh, if you've read very far into the book, beyond page 66 even, that the book focuses like a laser beam on Mac's process of healing, see, which is actually a mirror of Young's process of healing. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And the shack is really the chronicle of Young's healing journey. And so it goes through this refining process, and when it's all done, done, Young and his, I said dung, but I meant to say done, but you know what I meant. Flag the tape, please. Young and his partners have something that they wanted to see about being published after all that process. 
And they sent the manuscript out to every publishing house on the face of the earth. Every faith-based, every non-faith-based publisher out there, no one wanted the thing. No one wanted anything to do with it. Just a few even bothered to respond to this unsolicited manuscript that showed up on their doorstep. The faith-based publishers who responded, they said, look, we love the thing. We love it personally, but we don't have a marketing niche for it. And besides, it's just way too edgy. We don't really want to go out that close to the edge. And the non-faith-based publishers, they responded and they said, well, we love the thing personally. It was deeply impacting, but we don't have a marketing niche for it. And besides, it's just got way too much Jesus in it. Nobody would touch it with a 10-foot pole. And so Young's buddies, they're sitting around and they're like, well... Uh, we've always wanted a publishing company, and so let's start one. And so they did. This company called Windblown Media was born with one title and one author. And uh, it's a bit out there. I think I've even said it that the shack was, quote, self-published, but that's not entirely true because the shack actually has a publishing company. It's just Young and his partners in the process. And so when you start a public, I've never done this, but when you do start a publishing company, I understand, you eventually walk up to this place, this line in the sand, where you have to make the first major decision, and that decision is, how many do we print, right? How many of these crazy things are we going to print? And they don't have piles of money laying around young, and and one of the partners borrowed from friends and family a stack of money, and then uh, Jacobson dug into his retirement savings, and they pool their money together, and they're like, all right, we think we have enough money. Uh, Let's print 10,000. How's that sound? They're like, all right, sure, 10,000 it is. 10,000 copies, the first print run of the shack. But the printer who they hired to print and bind the book had some glitch in their system, and so they actually sent them 11,000 copies. And the windblown media guys are like, um... We don't really want that other thousand. The printing company's like, yeah, glitch in the system, but, and will you pay us, please, for the extra thousand? They're like, well, I don't think we can get rid of 10,000, let alone 11,000, but all, all right, we'll give you the money. And so they did that. The printer drop shipped the uh, first printing to Windblown Media's warehouse, which was the garage of one of the partners. The headquarters was the house that was attached to the garage and the warehouse uh, and the distribution center and so on. And so these three guys... Young is two partners. They are incredibly busy trying to make a living. They're working other jobs. And this whole shack thing is like a spare time thing for them. They're trying to make a real living. And now, out in one of their garages, they have 11,000 books piled up. And Young's going like, well, my wife has a real big family. And so if we just give a whole bunch of them to her family. We could get rid of some of them that way. And we've got a wide network of friends. And so we'll just give them out to our friends. And maybe in five or six years, we'll be able to get rid of all 11,000 of those books, right? Well, they had done a little web podcast thing Jacobson had going already. And he had Young on there. And Young talked about the book. And they had a 1,000 of them pre-sold. And so the first 1,000 went out. Now they have 10,000 left. And and they're like, all right, now what's going to happen? And they just sat there. They didn't have a marketing plan. They did not have a marketing budget. They did not have a marketing strategy of any kind. And from its first print run in late 2006 through June of 2008, as a matter of fact, and by June of 2008, the thing was already a New York Times best-selling book, they had spent less than $300 on marketing this deal. Less than three, I think the number was 260-some dollars. And it was already a New York Times best-selling book. 
And Young and his partners, they're very humble and they're very upfront about the fact that this didn't happen because of their masterful strategy or because they're brilliant. It just happened. It just happened. Young talks about the time, for example, that Barnes & Noble booksellers, kind of a big outfit, right? They called to find out how they could get The Shack because people are going into their local bookstores and asking about this book, The Shack. At the start, see, the only way you could get a copy of The Shack was to order it from the Windblown Media website. They weren't doing retail because they didn't think anybody really cared. So like, if you want The Shack, you've got to go to our website. It's the only way to buy it. And it was the only sales outlet, this website. But people started walking into places like Barnes & Noble asking for The Shack, right? Walk up to a sales associate. Hey, I'm here to buy a book called The Shack. And the guy's like, okay. Goes over to the computer or gal, types it in. The Shack, hmm, no such book as The Shack. They're like, well, there's really a book called The Shack. Could you find it? You're a bookstore, right? Where is it? And they're, no, we don't have it. And, well, it's by this company called Windblown Media. Try that. So type in Windblown. No, not even any such company as that. And so people are frustrated. They can't get the thing, right? It's happening all over the place. Pretty soon, Amazon.com called them. And they want to know how to get the thing because I think they sell an awful lot of books. People are trying to find it on there all the time. But as it turns out, somebody had already written a book called The Shack, and it was already up on Amazon, and its sales went through the roof as The Shack got more and more out there. And Young says, this book is terrible. This other book called The Shack is just terrible. I haven't read it, but he says it's terrible. But lots of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people were buying it and reading it, and it was terrible. And they're going like, my friend told me I should read this dumb thing. How did this awful book change anyone's life, right? Ah, I bet that other guy's real happy. <laughs> Helping him out. But pretty soon, they had their networking figured out, and Young's book, The Shack, starts to get out there, and people start buying more and more and more. And pretty soon, people are ordering like five copies and 10 copies, and, and people are buying cases of the thing. Right? It's what I did, actually. I read it last summer over the course of a weekend. I started on a Friday afternoon, and uh, I have a job on the weekend, and so I couldn't just lay around and read it, but I wedged it into the various empty spots in the weekend, and I got it done on Sunday afternoon and was incredibly moved, so moved that I set it on the coffee table, went right into the computer and ordered a case of 25 and handed it out to anybody who I thought would care about the thing, and that was happening all over the place. And in just four months... Those guys at Windblown Media went through that first 11,000 books, four months. And then they had another decision to make. All right, we gotta print more. How many this time? 20,000, they say. Let's print 20,000 this time, all right. They hire the same printer who, of course, had the same glitch in the system, so they ended up with 22,000 this time back at the warehouse and distribution center. I'm pretty sure that there's no glitch in the system. I'm pretty sure some guy over at that printing company is going like, hey, the whole glitch in the system thing worked last time. Let's sell 2,000 more books, right? They'll pay for them. Yeah. That 22,000 books went in 60 days, gone. So they ordered another 30,000 books. How many do you think they got? 33,000. Yep, that's exactly right. Didn't fix the glitch. There it goes. And in the midst of all that, they managed to pick up a distributor, no more garage warehouse thing. And one day Barnes & Noble calls again now, and they're going, hey, this thing is blowing out the door, but we probably should get on board with you about your marketing and promotional plan. You probably have posters and stuff. We want to be on board with you in that. And these windblown media guys, they're like, 
hey, Barnes and Noble's asking for a marketing and promotion plan, and they're like, if we knew what that was or if we had one, we would gladly send it to you, but we don't. And it's just how it went. In relatively rapid fashion, the shack became a word-of-mouth phenomenon. People were, and to this day still are, reading the thing, and it's spawning incredible conversations about God, about spiritual things that had never taken place before. I've heard stories of families who are very private about their faith and such. They never talk about religion with their families. But then the shack book has come along, and all of a sudden, families around the dinner table are talking about God and spiritual things in ways that they had never done before, and this book actually became the platform for those conversations. I've even heard a lot of stories about people who are not Christians giving the shack to their Christian friends and going, hey, you should read this book. It will change your life. And to like reconvert us or something, right? So all that just by way of background. To, it's kind of the backstory to the shack. I want you to know that. Now, William Paul Young, he grew up as a missionary and preacher's kid. right? And in his own words, he said that's the most messed up way you could ever grow up a missionary and preacher's kid. Young was just 10 months old when he and his whole family moved to Guinea. And their family moved to Guinea to live and serve and minister amongst the tribal people who had never even seen white people before. And William Paul Young, he grew up amongst the Donnie tribe of Guinea. The Donnie tribe is about 40,000 people or so who live in an area that covers about 100 square miles. And that was Young's normal life. He grew up in a tribe in Africa. And the Donnie tribe of Africa, they were very interesting people. They were spirit-worshipping folk. They had witch doctors and witches and the whole spirit stuff. They did the whole deal. And they weren't very nice people. The Dani tribe wasn't. They were warriors, killing people. They were cannibals, warriors and cannibals. But at the same time, they sort of had a softer side that was very tied into family, family roots, and so on. And the Dani tribe raised William Paul Young, essentially. Because, see, Young's father was a very young man when they went to minister to this tribe, and he had no training, he had no background information, he had no nothing before literally just being dropped into the middle of a Stone Age cannibalistic tribal people. That meant that Young's dad had his hands way more than full. Young grew up quite disconnected from his dad as a result. At the age of six, boarding school was mandatory. And so at six years old, he flew off to boarding school. He didn't even come back until Christmas break. And when he did, he didn't even remember what he was supposed to call his mom. He actually called his mother, his own mother, by the name of the dorm mom at boarding school. And at boarding school, Young had to come to some startling realizations. The first one, uh, he's Canadian, right? So he's quite white. The startling realization he had to come to was that he wasn't black, Right? He had been raised among a tribal people in Africa, and he just thought, they must not have many mirrors there, he just thought he was one of them. He had no idea that he was a white guy, and that was alarming to him. See, he grew up literally sitting around tribal leader meetings around campfires and such where the tribal leaders of the Donnie tribe were having conversation about whether or not they would kill Young's parents 
who were seeking to minister. They saw them as white invaders into their world and into their tribe. Some other interesting things also happened amongst the tribe. Starting at age four, Young began to be sexually molested by the members of the very tribe whom his family had come to serve and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Age four. Young was excited to go to boarding school. He thought, oh, I'll get out of this molesting environment at boarding school. He didn't. The first night at boarding school, a Christian boarding school, mind you, Young and the rest of the first grade class were sexually molested by the older boys at the Christian boarding school. And as you can well imagine, those traumatizing events, as well as a whole bunch of others that I just don't have time to tell you about, began an entire chain of events that led Young to write this fictional story called The Shack. And The Shack, it's a metaphor, okay? The Shack is a metaphor. Because see, every single person walking the planet today is building a house in our souls, right? We're all building a house in our souls. We're building stuff in our soul. We're building stuff on the inside of us. And the very most important people in our lives, especially at very early ages in our lives, help us lay the foundation of what gets built in our souls and how that soul construction process goes for all of our days and how people treat us and the things that people do to us have a major bearing on what gets built in our souls. You all know this. But there's an interesting thing that happens is that not very many people actually see what the house of our souls really looks like, right? Because we're all quite occupied with building a fantastic facade and that's what everybody sees. They see the facade that covers up the real, true house of our soul that we're all building. A few years ago, we made these crazy Mushroom Impossible videos for a camp that we used to do back in the day. And it was the second one of the, if you've seen those films, by the way, I'm just sorry. I just apologize. Very sorry. Not my best work. It was the second one of those things that we did that we needed an Old West town scene. And we found out that we had a connection to a guy who owned this land out north of Billings who had this very large, very elaborate Old West town scene that was built on about five acres for a Hollywood film that was shot there in the 1980s or so. He said we could use the thing for our shoot, and so we went out to the place, and it was just fantastic. There was the brothel, and there was the mercantile, and there was the saloon, and there were the houses, and it covers about five acres, and it was very elaborate and very well done. But I don't think I had ever really understood the whole facade deal until I spent a day out there filming this thing. And these facades were absolutely amazing. They were beautiful. They were a bit weathered, but they were beautiful. The detail, the intricacy that had been put into building them was remarkable. And when you stood on the street side of those facades, it was quite staggering. But then you just took one step inside, and you found out there was no inside. It was just a front, an elaborately and very well-constructed front. And behind them, when you walk through the door of the saloon or the brothel or the mercantile, whatever it was, all that was behind them was open air and some crumbling lumber that was holding that facade up for everyone to see. And with all of us, 
we have these facades that we construct. And those facades become the public us. It's what we lead with. It's what people think of us as. But then just behind that facade, behind this very carefully constructed public face of every single one of us is the shack. Because we're all building a house of our soul. And behind the public us is the shack. Because beside, behind the very public us is the stuff that we all carry the baggage and the shame and the pain and the stuff of life. And most everyone walking the planet gives very careful energy to the construction of that public face of us, that facade. And we make it look good for everyone. We make it look especially good for God, right? We dance on God's stage because we think we have to perform for God to earn his love somehow. We make it look really good for other people because we want them, all of you, to think very well of us. And we paint the facade again and again and we keep it all shined up out front. But most of the time, that facade just never holds up to the elements. That facade just never holds up to the stuff of life. And Young found his facade crumbling. Just like a whole bunch of us often find our facade crumbling. And if you were to have a conversation with Paul Young, he would be entirely and wholly honest about how he had been keeping up that facade for the first 38 years of his life. Performing for people, performing for God, doing all the, quote, right stuff. And Young talks about how incredibly thin that veneer was that was across the front of his pain and across the front of his shame and across the front of his woundedness and how he worked with all of his energy to keep his shack all covered up so that nobody would ever see it, that they would never know it was there. Because see, he knew something that lots of us know, that if your facade ever comes crumbling down, if your thin veneer ever gets pierced, then all you're left with is your shame and your pain and your baggage and your stuff. You're left with the shack, the house that we've all been building in our souls. And the shack becomes a metaphor for the house that we're all building in our souls. And one day, uh, after the shack had been out for a little while, Paul Young got a letter from a lady. He didn't know her. And the letter said, look, Paul, I have no idea what your backstory is. I have no idea what you'd been through. He hadn't been as public about the things that I've talked to you about today back then. But my sense, this lady writes, is that Missy, who you all know is the little girl in the story, she represents something that died in you as a child. I would suggest uh, your innocence, she wrote to Paul. And then Mac, she suggests, who is the main character of the book, He represents your process of coming to health and to healing. He represents the process of you getting well through all that you've been through in your life. And Young, he was reading this letter and he just felt pinned to the wall. He was like, oh my gosh. And he showed the thing to his wife and all his wife could do was shake her head and say, man, she nailed that, didn't she? And she absolutely had. She had just nailed it. And this book is touching a nerve. It touched a nerve with me, and it's touching a nerve with 
tens of thousands and even millions of people. And my opinion for why it's touching such a nerve and my opinion about why it's having such an impact is that in so much of the church and across so much of Christianity, we think that we can just skip over dealing with our shack. We think we can just gloss over the top of ever dealing with our stuff. And we've all got stuff, don't we? We think we can just like pray a prayer and get saved one day and the next day be all better. Happy-go-lucky, life is a bed of roses, tiptoe through the tulips kind of deal. But it doesn't work that way. Following Jesus doesn't work that way. And getting well doesn't work that way. There is absolutely no avoiding the shack of our souls that we've all been building our whole lives, trying to cover up and hide and facade and veneer over. And so it's come through this seemingly innocuous work of fiction called the shack that all kinds of people in all kinds of places are coming to the place of going, oh yeah, I've got stuff. Man, I've got stuff. I've got pain, and I've got woundedness, and I've got abuse, perhaps, and I've got baggage, just like Mac does. I've got stuff. And the realization they're coming to is that God actually loves them enough that he wants to walk with them, with you, right into the midst, I don't know what else to call it, of all that crap God wants to walk right into the midst of all that crap. And he, almighty God, wants to heal me and he wants to heal you and he wants to make you new. He wants to actually set you on a whole new course of living so there doesn't have to be a facade anymore. So that that can just be torn down so you can be the authentic and the real you who God designed you and created you and us and everyone to be. And it doesn't take very long hanging around the church, hanging around Christians. It doesn't take too many visits to very many churches, to too many weekend services, to discover that Christians by and large are groups of people who are very comfortable in relating to a deity who fits into very narrow and precise doctrinal positions and structures. We love structure, we love doctrine, we love narrow, and we love precise, don't we? And if we were to be honest, the church has, for the most part, managed most of the mystery about God right out of our perceptions of who he is and how he relates to humanity. That's why the shack is touching such a nerve on the controversial side of things. Because we want a manageable deity, We don't like a God with much mystery. We must be able to explain him and understand him, right? A guy named Donald McCullough, there'd be a whole lot of Christ followers who would agree with something that he said. He assessed the church this way. It may well be that the worst sin of the church is the trivialization of God, making God very small and very predictable and very un-God-like. Annie Dillard, she writes in a similar vein, she asked this question, why is it that people in churches seem like cheerful tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? It's a great question. She says, it's madness to wear straw hats and velvet hats to church. Instead, we should all be wearing crash helmets, she writes. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our chairs. For God, she says, may draw us out to a place where we could never, ever come back from. And she's right. But we, most of us in the church and most of us who call ourselves Christ followers, we prefer an image of a much safer, much more predictable, much more understandable deity than that, don't we? And because of that preference, we have pared and we have scraped and we have pried God down into much more manageable proportions. There's my God box. He fits neatly and tidily inside of there. I can describe and explain and understand everything about him and he goes right on that shelf, right there. Which is frankly one of the prime reasons that we're undertaking the book of the shack for the month of January. Because see, for me and for us as a community, while doctrinal positions that are held with very passionate conviction and very narrowly painted theological frameworks, they provide helpful intellectual understanding and personal spiritual experience. All of that stuff is vital to a vibrant faith in God. But see, all three of those things, they're just lenses They are just lenses through which we can see very important aspects of who God is and how he functions. And see, the problem of a trivial God arises when we neglect the chasm, and it is an enormous chasm that exists between our view of who God is and how he functions and the reality of who God is and how he functions. Equating the... the picture in our particular lens of who God is and how he functions with the whole of divine truth is the recipe for a faith that paints the almighty God into mere triviality. And he doesn't become, he's not God anymore. He's just an image of us, really. When we say that we truly understand and when we say that we truly get And we say that we can explain everything about who God is and how he functions. It's like all of us taking a drinking straw, holding up to our eyes, looking through it, and walking around saying that we can see everything that there is to be seen on planet Earth. Frankly, any view of God that doesn't kick the bars out of our prison, of our perceptions, is a trivial God. It just is. And there's a whole lot of us who would very readily admit that there is a lot about God that we don't know. In practice, it's very different, isn't it? In practice, we often feel like we have to have all of the answers to all of the things about God. Things like the problem of evil and why God allows bad things to happen to seemingly good people or the relationship between divine sovereignty and human free will, or we feel like we have to have an airtight explanation for how exactly the Trinity functions. How about this one? Does God send people letters? And does he deliver them into USPS-approved mailboxes? I had a friend who asked me that question just this week, does God write people letters? And you know my answer? I don't know. I don't know if God writes people letters or not. But I think I wrote back in an email that misses the point, entirely misses the point. The question is better asked by saying, could God write someone a letter? Could God write you a letter? And could he deliver it to your USPS-approved mailbox for you to read? 
for you to have some understanding, for you to have an encounter with him. Could God? I don't know if God writes letters to people and puts them in their mailboxes. I don't know. But we feel like amongst Christianity that we can't drop that answer very often, the I don't know answer. And so very often we assume a role of taking the position of God's defense attorney on such matters, trying to make God look really good to bolster his public approval ratings somehow. Let's be honest. There is much about God that we simply don't know. So much about God that we simply don't know and are frankly incapable of knowing this side of eternity. But we often pretend we know. We often pretend to be absolutely certain of so many things about God which are frankly on the outside absolutely unknowable to us. And on the inside, they're at least unclear even when we hold the Bible up and say, what does the Bible say about this? There's a lot unclear in the Bible, frankly. And what you gotta know is that Paul Young, he never set out to write a systematic theology book. It was never his goal. He set out to write a book of fiction for his kids that no one else was going to read, and so he chose to extrapolate some things. He chose to fill in the blanks about some things. And as he's writing this book, he's wanting to give his kids a big picture of his understanding of God. Young says himself what he was trying to do was give his kids a puzzle box top of his understanding of who God is and how he functions. If you've ever done a puzzle before, you know that you keep the puzzle box top right there because you need to know where this blue piece fits into the framework of the entire puzzle, right? You need some sort of context to where things fit together. Young never had that kind of view. Young never had that kind of context with anything growing up, let alone God. And lots of us live in that exact same place, see. What lots of us get is a piece of the puzzle here and a piece of the puzzle there. And when we're supposed to put it in some sort of framework, but that framework isn't hardwired into us. And so it leads us to some very troubling views of God some troubling perceptions of who God is and how he functions. Lots of us have a view of God as him being like Gandalf with an attitude, right? Or like the Greek god Zeus. Or how many of us hold to an understanding and a view of God as being just like Santa Claus? He's making a list. He's checking it twice gonna find out who's naughty and nice. You better watch out because Santa Claus is coming back to town. And that's our view and that's our perception of God. But see, the trouble with those views, the trouble with those perception of God is it's all based on our performance. Us dancing on the God stage. Our ability to perform and behave well enough to actually earn the love of God but we don't have to earn the love of God. And aren't we glad that we don't have to perform for God to earn his love? Because if we did, we're all in deep weeds, very deep weeds. So let's, as a community, let's not trivialize God. Let's not try to answer all of the questions about God. Let's not try to be able to explain everything about God. Let's leave some mystery to God because there's a lot 
of mystery to God if we're completely honest. And let's be comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't know. And just in case you haven't heard, the shack has come with a whole boatload of controversy. Paul Young has been completely and totally vilified by many in the Christian community as literally being worthy of being burned at the stake. Now, they're not saying that overtly, but they may as well be. I've read and I've heard and I've seen some things that people, Christians, mind you, have written and said about Young that are almost unfathomable to me. Things that you wouldn't say to anybody. You wouldn't say it to your own worst enemy, let alone a brother who, by the way, will be spending all of eternity with in heaven, right? And anytime Paul Young is asked about the controversy and how he's taking it in and how he's sucking it up and how all that toxic poison is affecting him, you know what he says? He says, it is all worth it. It is all worth it. And I saw him do this one time where somebody asked about the criticism as everybody who interviews him does. He said, it's all worth it and I just want to read you one letter, he said. And he says, I get 50 to 100 of these every single day just about like this and he read this letter. Dear sir, I've never written to an author before. I've never felt the need, but that's changed. Your book, The Shack, so inspired my son from whom I have been estranged for over 40 plus years to undertake a spiritual quest that led him from Atlanta, Georgia to Oak Grove, Oregon by motorcycle for a short visit of just several hours. His email to me was totally unexpected and brief. The last sentence was, I will be there within the next week bearing a great gift. The gift was a dog-eared, much-read copy of the shack. Behind the front cover of the book, he made several notes of importance addressed to his father. The one that it has the greatest significance to me, this dad writes, says this, there is healing in the giving and in the receiving of forgiveness. And isn't that true? There is healing in the giving and receiving of forgiveness. And the dad closes his email to Paul Young with these words, so we did that and we did so much more. And Young concluded reading that letter and he said, it is all worth it. To the glory of God, it is all worth it. And I could not agree with him more. Some people are asking question, Brian, are you going to engage in the controversial pieces of the book? And my answer is another question. Since when have we ever shied away from controversy around this place? Yes, we're going to step right into the middle of the controversial pieces of the book and we're gonna hold what Young has written up in the light of God's magnificent and revealing word and we're going to let God's word illuminate what's true and we're gonna start doing that together next week. I hope you'll be back through page 127 by next weekend. If you need a book, they're out in the lobby. If 10 bucks is a deal for you, don't let it be. Just pick one up and say, Brian said I could have one. Don't let $10 be an obstacle. And then get in one of those discussion groups. Lots of them out there invite you to start one if you're so inclined. And there's information at the shack table about how to do that. Let's go to prayer together. God, thank you so much for who you are. And that you are so wholly other than we are. God, I pray for us as a community in the course of the coming days and weeks, God, that you would open our eyes to the mystery of you. 
that we as a community would never trivialize you. God, that we as a community would come to know you better, the things that you've made very clear, that we would come to know those things a whole lot better. And God, that we would leave things that are mysterious, mysterious, and not try to form them in our image or form them in our opinion or form them in our theological framework and structure and understanding, paradigm. You are God. And I pray that we have the ability to leave you as God. May we be open to the stuff that you want to show us and the stuff that you want to teach us. All so that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ. That's our goal. We sure love you. We sure thank you. We worship you with our whole lives, God. This study, this conversation, this message series included. May it be worship to you. May it bring you glory and fame and honor. Because that's the desire of our hearts, God. In Jesus' name we pray all of this. And the church said, amen.